Sport Calgary is a volunteer-based nonprofit society guided by a deep love of sport and a mission to help sport grow in Calgary. Hello, kids. How the heck are you? How you holding up? How you doing? Are you all right? You okay? It's your pal Rob Kerr here. Uh, thanks for stopping by. It is the original Six Feet Conversation podcast. Uh, we've already put a couple out. We've already put a lot out. We've, we're a couple weeks into this. Uh, listening back to the beginning, uh, baffled by my inability to come up with the correct name for this podcast. It is the Six Feet, original Six Feet Conversation podcast. Original Six Feet conversation podcast so i don't know why i couldn't get it right still struggle with it but there it is uh full disclosure time full disclosure time our guest today friend of mine yep uh we serve on the kid sport board uh he is uh and you know what in this conversation we don't even get into it there is so much left on the table like we i we probably uh well the peter marr conversation um, the Trent McClellan conversation, the Peter LeBar, all the conversations, we could have done more. There is so much that we left on the table, which is a terrible way of getting you to keep listening today. But trust me, it's worth listening today. If you love a little hockey history, if you love a little Calgary history, uh, if you like a little nostalgia, if you like great storytelling, boy, did you download the right podcast today. I am here to tell you. Um his resume reads like this. Two Stanley Cups. One in 89 with the Calgary Flames. One in 2007 with the Anaheim Ducks. He is currently working for the New Jersey Devils, uh, but he lives here in Calgary. He also works for Hockey Canada. Uh, as I mentioned, he is the vice chair, I believe is the new term, uh, for Kidsport and the Comrie Sports Bank. Uh, you know him, you love him as Al Coates, uh, truly one of the great gentlemen of hockey and one of the great gentlemen of Calgary. And it was indeed a pleasure to sit back. Look, it's a podcast. You've already seen how long this one is. It's epic. And I swear we never got out of the 80s. We never got out of the 80s. There's a whole other equally as long podcast to do with Al Coates about the 90s and becoming the GM and some trades that he made and up into the 2000s, and we will do that. I, Well, I'm hoping we're going to do that at some point. Uh, so very, very excited for you to hear this conversation with my friend Al Coates today. Um, I just want to do this, though, take one more opportunity to remind you why we're here. Sport Calgary members have access to resources such as marketing on social media, blog entries, features, and placement on the events listing. Become a member. It's easy and free. Visit www.sportcalgary.ca slash members. Get ready, folks. Sit back, turn it up, and enjoy. We go one-on-one with the legendary Al Coates. I'm just going to press record, and, and you and I are going to start, Al. And I'm going to... Beautiful. Okay, so where we're just going to start, Al, is... Uh, what are you up to? How's how are you holding up? How how are you dealing with all of this? Well, it's uh, it's a different world we're living in. It's it's funny because well, it's not funny. Nothing's funny, but I um, I kind of go back to all of my NHL days and think of how simple and meaningless, maybe well not meaningless, but how trivial in comparison NHL lockouts were for a year versus what we're sitting around dealing with now with a you know with a world pandemic so 
you know, it uh, it clearly brings thing, things into perspective. But I I'm um, I'm an eternal optimist. I I do know that we're all going to get through this, and uh, our our role in life, I think, is to figure out how to come out at the, on the other end of it better than when when we went in. It, so that's that's kind of my take on it. Yeah, I I mean, just I guess a, a little professional perspective too, because you are back on the road as a, a scout you're working for new jersey this season and um you know i'm sure you had lots of work and lots of plans and you know you're a guy that's traveling and all of a sudden traveling is is non-existent i mean that must have come to a fairly abrupt stop yeah fortunately i mean every, everybody uh did the right thing and all that i had uh umpteen games still remaining on my schedule to travel to like uh Another California trip uh, to see Anaheim, LA, San Jose, and the and the American League farm teams, et cetera. Not to mention continually going to the Saddledome and Ebenon and Vancouver and Winnipeg. So I I still had a fair amount of travel to do, but uh, clearly the right thing was done um, and and suspended travel uh, even even before uh, games were suspended. You know, just for some things didn't make sense. You know, like you, you really shouldn't do things that you have a gut feeling that doesn't, that doesn't, don't make sense, you know? So, um, we were kind of in that, in that situation where is it, you know, I've always kind of at this, uh, inner philosophy, I suppose, is it, is it necessary or is it not? Yeah. You know, is it essential or non-essential when you've already seen a team, 10 or 11 times does that one more uh viewing make the difference what are you going to see that you haven't seen the other 10 games so i you know that kind of boils down to essential and non-essential and and we had the same thing in hockey canada really we're you know we're on the other the other part of my um life this past year working there where <clears throat> to give credit clearly where credit's due to the leadership group at hockey canada it, it seemed like we were jumping the gun or they were jumping the gun on the cancellation of the women's world championships in Halifax. But, you know, when you think about it and you only have to go back like three weeks, yeah, uh, they really got out in front of that and, and were uh, a leadership group, I think in, in, um, in a lot of these uh, events, uh, domestic and internationally, and quite frankly, I'm so proud of the uh, the Canadian Summer Olympians that said we're you know on the Summer Olympic team says we're you know we're not going to participate. So once once again, uh, I think you know Canada played a huge leadership role in here. They were the first ones to say we're not going, and I believe that's true anyways. And and so once again, and look at the result of taking a, taking a leadership role by our Canadian athletes. So. It's been busy. Everything that's been busy. Everybody, everybody's busy. Quite frankly, I mean, life is busy, and it's um, you know, it's a very you know, it's a very very different week and month and et cetera that we're living in right now. We're we're week week two at home or whatever it is, and it seems like it's been an eternity already. So, uh, anyways, we'll adjust and uh, and we'll uh, we'll make our way through it. I want to um, I, I want to transition to, to talking and telling some stories, but I, and I want to do it this way. Um, let's start chronologically backwards because you are back on the road scouting. What is 
scouting like now? How has it changed, Al, since you know you would have last done it or overseen it? I know it wasn't that long ago. I mean, you know, reasonably recently with Anaheim and then Toronto, but um, the the upward tick on technology and analytics. How did you find coming back and, and watching teams professionally? Well, it's been really, really interesting, Rob, like for me personally, because I ha- I've been going to a lot of games for the last several years. You know, you would see me yep. down at the Saddle Dome, for example, or whatever. And, and I'm and I'm there because I love the sport and I love the people, uh, whether it be fans, coaches, media or whatever. I just like I just like being around people. But to be totally honest, I mean, I'd watch bits and pieces of the game or watch parts of a game and and you know, with no purpose necessarily other than to be entertained. And when you go back into the profession and you actually are responsible for making an educated opinion on on what you're seeing or what you saw, you're, you really have to delve in and, and pay attention. The, the difficulty that I found, and I'm being totally honest about it, was because I hadn't been all over the league, uh, American League, NHL, in the last few years, um, uh, doing this kind of work, this evaluation work, these players, a lot of these players were brand new to me. I mean, I, I didn't know them. I didn't have a book on them from last year or the year before. Right. Or going to back to, to junior to refer on, because then at that point, you, what, you're, what you're saying really is, what is the difference that I'm seeing today from what I saw two years ago or three years ago with this player? How has this player evolved? I mean, what, what, what's happened to his skill set? You know, does he does he make does he make an impact on the game um, negatively or positively or whatever type of thing? And and those are all the, the the things that now that you have to pay attention to, pay very close attention to. And furthermore, the game, the game has cl- changed drastically. Yeah. From from X amount of years with, uh, you know, it's not that many years ago that the red line was eliminated. Um, something that I still don't agree with, but in any case, it is what it is. And it's uh, the reality that uh, we're dealing with. So that, that that has changed the game. And who can play in the game and be an impact player in the game uh, uh, drastically from even 10 years ago. So it's it's been a, it's been a real uh, uh, learning curve for me to go back in and delve back into that. I have to say I've really enjoyed it. It's made me way more attentive uh, attentive to, to the game and 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 talking to people and trying to get to the bottom of things and really um, you know really tried to figure out what is going on. So I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed. I have to say I've enjoyed being back in all the rinks, uh, whether it's in L.A. or Anaheim or San Jose or Winnipeg. I don't care. Like I don't go. I rarely, if at all, go east other than some meetings in in new jersey so my my territory is essentially uh mainly in the west and, and it's mainly quite frankly to help a couple of other guys uh, nick Vitucci, who lives in welland ontario and but is responsible for winnipeg vancouver evan and, and calgary and so it was to take a little bit of the load off of him and take a little bit of load off of uh claude noel uh who used to coach the winnipeg jets people will remember that sure who uh is responsible for a whole host of teams, uh, Dallas and San Jose and LA and Anaheim. So, and, and all the farm teams with that and, uh, 
Phoenix and, or sorry, Arizona and, and Tucson and Vegas, et cetera. So I found myself being part-time and uh, being, uh, I don't think anything's part-time. The joke is, uh, the joke is part-time pay full-time work. That's just <laughs> kind of where I was at with this whole thing because, you know, I think we're all like this. I know you're like this. If, if, if you want to do something right, it's, you're, you're into it. Yeah. You're, you're full on into it. It's not, it's not part-time. Well, yeah, you know, I'll get to that next week or I'll, you know, I'll, I'll get to that. But what if somebody asks you a question in the meantime, and, and it's an important question about either how a team plays or how a player players or, or, or is this a fit for our team? You know, you need to be in a position, or at least I want to be in a position where I could actually do my best to try to answer that question and not make a mistake. As the uh, Lord knows, in the cap world, you cannot afford to make mistakes. So that's the the latest Al Coates job in hockey. What was the first Al Coates job in hockey? Uh, besides playing, I assume you're talking about. Well, I mean, we should, uh, I, I guess we. Need... I wasn't. I wasn't exactly a Gila Fleur or a whatever as a player. I mean, <laughs> played intercollegiate hockey and then went to Europe to play. And yeah. I mean, I don't know how much time you have, but I'll give you a quick story because I, I use this sometimes when I'm speaking. There's nothing wrong with being nice to somebody sometimes, and uh, and uh, I, I know how you are. Uh, you end up getting a lot of work that maybe you aren't looking for. <laughs> Because you're uh, nice to people sometimes, and uh, when I was at Ryerson, uh, going to school in Ryerson, went to summer school, and I helped the trainer. Long story short, helped the trainer, who was the trainer in living in Toronto, where most of the players were, however, playing uh, for the Montreal Canadiens professional lacrosse team. Oh. Anyway, long story short, I know why he asked me. You know, we got twenty-five dollars a game for doing that, <laughs> but he didn't have a car. And I had a car. In fact, I had an old uh, Ford convertible, and all the equipment bags would fit in that car. So I, he was way smarter than me, obviously, and he figured out how I could help him get all the stuff to the airport. And we'd fly, uh, pick up players here and there, and we'd go to Montreal and play the game, and then we'd come back. Anyways, fast forward, uh, I was teaching high school in Bowmanville, Ontario. Finished that, worked for the Oshawa Green Gills. We won the uh, mental cup world championship or uh, sorry canadian championship and then i went to europe to play and as in um, when i'm playing over there um the guy who had hired me for the oshawa green gales his name was jim bishop and by this time <clears throat> he had now become the executive vice president of the detroit red wings right so this is hard to conceive now or like understand now we're sitting in 2020 wherever everybody has multiple apps and multiple this and multiple electronic gadgets but we didn't even have a fax in in when i was working in the uh, the hilton hotel in amsterdam i wrote him a letter and i said how are you doing jim and uh and how how are things type of thing because in europe all you got was the nhl standings in the herald tribune that's all that's it okay that's the only hockey you got there was a two-inch box in the Herald Tribune on a daily basis to see who was in first place, da-da-da-da. Anyways, he writes me back, and he says to me, he says, uh, uh, we're putting a new American Hockey League team in Tidewater, Virginia. If you're interested and would like the job, the job is yours to have. Let me know. So I was over there, and I'm thinking, like, what am I doing over here? I was working for Lotus Cars Holland, 
I was selling tax-free cars. I was playing hockey. I wasn't making any money, so to speak, or whatever. My parents were older, living in Ontario. I say, I, I, I should go home. I need to go home. I should go home. So away I went. I went. And so look, to answer your question, my very first job was in Tidewater, Virginia. That's a combination of, of uh, Norfolk and Chesapeake and Suffolk and Virginia Beach and Hampton Roads. Okay. And all that all that area is called Tidewater. Yep. And so they did, you're going to laugh about this, they did market research. <laughs> market research in 1971, which said there's a million two, million two, uh, 200 people, population in Tidewater. This has got to be a great place to put a uh, an American hockey team. And the Tidewater Tides were in a baseball team that are very successful. The only problem was when I got there as the very first employee, and I was the trainer, by the way, equipment manager, uh, the physiotherapist, uh, the medical trainer, the whole, thing, whole whole game. When I got there and started going around, I found out quickly that people in Hampton Roads never in their whole life had been to Norfolk. People in Suffolk wouldn't come across the bridge and go to Norfolk, nor would they go to Hampton Roads. So the million two, based on the market research, was about 200,000 maximum, or 150 maybe. So anyways, we tried to make all that work. But anyways, to answer your question, that was my first job. I was there for uh, two years, and then the uh, great, and very close friend of mine, Doug Barkley, and I took a team to London, England. It was called the London Lions, <laughs> and it was a comp- it was a composition of the Fort Worth Red Wings, which that all pros, which had folded, some American League players, and some Europeans who were under contract to Detroit, and and uh, through the the owner of the Detroit Red Wings at the time, Bruce A. Norris and John Ziegler, and a guy named Joe Besh in New York, and the late Bunny Ahern, who used to be the president of the IIHF, right. uh, three, four decades, five decades ago. Uh, we took an, what was known as a pro team that was going to play an experimental 72-game schedule in Europe, and our home base was the Wembley uh, Arena on top of the Wembley Pool in London, England. And we played Russia, Czechoslovakia, Sweden, Finland, et cetera, et cetera. And Doug Barkey was the coach. And we had a 72-game series and won 51 games. Wow. Over there. The, whole, the whole idea was to try to determine whether or not pro hockey would, would be welcomed in Europe. And this was in, this was in 1973-74. It only lasted one year. I remember going to the World Championships in uh, Helsinki at the conclusion of that year with Doug, John Ziegler, Alex Dovecchio, who was then the general manager of the Detroit Red Wings. And guess who's playing for uh, Finland in, um, in the World Championships? Alfie Nielsen, Anders Hedberg, et cetera, et cetera, and the great Russian teams yep. with all the players that, you know, this is 1974. So the guys that played in 72 and would have played in the 74 ex- ex- series. Exactly. Yeah. Gusev and all, yeah. all the, the, the giant defense 
of the rest of they're all they're all playing there. Wow. So anyways, that was that year, and then come back, and we tried it one more year in Virginia, and that didn't work, and I tried to buy the team, and that didn't work. And then, thank goodness for Alex DeVec, he always says, calls me up and says, well, why don't you come here? Come to Detroit. We need you. Okay, so I'm going to park Detroit for a second. We know you get end up in Detroit, but two things I need you to tell me about. Where did where did you meet Doug Barkley? How did you meet? How did you end up crossing paths with Doug Barkley? So the first, well, in, initially what happened was, uh, so he, he, well, first of all, I think anybody from from these parts around here that's listening, I, I know you have a huge radius oh, of your listening audience. You but, betcha. Uh, around here know that uh, Doug uh, suffered an accident and he was a great player. Yes. Like I, I'm, I'm talking Hall of Fame caliber player, right-hand shot defenseman, big, strong, powerful, yep. unbelievable shot and tough, et cetera, et cetera, in that year hockey, and unfortunately uh, had an accident lost the, the sight of one, of one of his eyes. So, so or lost sight of an eye. So anyways, he was coaching in Fort Worth, got a chance to coach the Detroit Red Wings, and was let go uh, by them. And interestingly enough, there was another former Red Wing by the name Larry Jeffrey. Okay. Who he was a scout with the Red Wings, who they put in Tidewater in Norfolk in particular, Tidewater, to coach the American Hockey League team. And it, some people are cut out to coach, and some people are not. And he just didn't like it. Okay. And I remember being at his house on New Year's eve day and him saying to me al i don't care whether they fire me or not i'm not coaching wednesday and so you're asking the question when did i meet meet doug barkley uh detroit asked doug barkley to come down and finish the rest of the year in tidewater virginia with the the american hockey league team that's the first time i ever met him and we've been friends are friends very close friends ever since i i know Best, best man at my wedding by the way I actually knew that, but what I only know Doug as a color analyst on Flames broadcasts, and I got to know him yep. a little bit when I got here. This is what I know about Doug. I ain't ever going to cross Doug. Like, he has huge... <laughs> That's smart on your part. He is, and can you just, again, for our audience, because he's a local, he's local too, isn't he? Yeah, oh, sure. Yeah, well, he was born in Lethbridge. Right, yeah, so he's he a came southern... Here, he came here, came here as a kid to work with... Uh, you know, standard general, right. I think, and 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 or and or Molson's in the summertime. Now he he played for the Wings, correct? So he he yeah, he, he played was a, for the Calgary Stampeders at one time, right? But his and NHL belonged, career belonged to Chicago, right? To Chicago in the Chicago chain, and traded to Detroit. Just to give people an idea of of the caliber of hockey person we're talking about, like Doug Barkley, because he played with Gordie Howe. Every once in a while, when they, we had that old ESPN Classics show, and they'd have a black and white game from the original six, and you would see them play, I don't think, yep. like, he was a good hockey player, Al. We're not talking about a an up-and-down guy. This is a good NHL he was a, he was a gr- He was a great hockey player. Yeah. I, I'm not kidding. Like, he yeah. had a, he, w- he would have been a perennial All-Star, all-star yeah. in the National Hockey League, without question. And that and that leads you to, to greater greatness in downtown Toronto sometimes. For sure. Okay, so that was the one point. The second point, just can you just give us a few stories about that one year in Wembley? Um, first of all, what was it like to play? In, because now there's a fairly thriving English league over there that some North Americans go and play. Has a little bit of a following over here, but you know, 
it's hockey over there. But this, you were the only team in the in the country at that point. Well, no, there were other there were other teams in. We were the only pro team. But only pro. Other, okay, there, only pro uh, team. Other other teams. Um, and the history of it is that the the Wembley Lions. Yes. The the Wembley Lions were a, were a team really after. No, I'm not, I'm not this old. No, but but there were some great NHL players, actually, who were in the war, right? And who stayed in Europe and oh. played, and some of them played. There was a guy oh. named Georgie G for uh, by the name comes back to me, who was a Detroit Red Wing player, if I'm not mistaken. I I might have this wrong, and I apologize if I do. But anyway, some of these guys stayed yes. and they played for a team called the Wembley Lions, and and that had. So that that all went away, and this was kind of a resurrection of that. Okay. The, the the mere fact that this was an experimental experiment to to see what the uptake would be on on pro hockey in Europe <clears throat> was really really interesting. Then you couple that with okay, we took um, twenty one or twenty two players. Um, you see Dennis Palanich at games here. Yep. Uh, so he was he was a Red Wing draft pick from Foam Lake, Saskatchewan. Yep. He was on that team. A big kid named Mike Corney, six foot four, two hundred thirty pound uh, right winger from Saskatchewan. He was on that team, and and they were inseparable. Mutt and Jeff. One's five foot six, and one is or five foot seven, whatever. And the other one's six foot four, and and they they hung out together. We had a really good team, and Barkley did a great job of uh, coaching that team but the makeup of, of it was a combination of the team that was folded in Fort Worth pros and some American League guys uh, and then we had three Europeans who were under contract to the Red Wings uh, one was name was Ulf Sterner Tord Lundstrom who later played for Toronto uh, and the goalie his name was Honkin Holmquist <laughs> And and uh, so, <laughs> Honkin Honkin. Well, his real name was Leaf, but Leaf Holmquist. But his nickname was Honkin, and he was an an absolute god in in uh, in Sweden. And so was so was Lundstrom and Sterner. They they yeah. were they were the best of the best players that they had at that particular time, trying to make their way, make their mark in the National Hockey League. They didn't quite cut it. Uh, at that particular time, and they ended up on uh, playing on this team. So, anyways, I, I remember as it, like it was yesterday. We all fly over there from Detroit. I think we land on October the fifteenth. We take a lorry uh, with all the equipment on to Wembley Pool. Uh, Wembley Pool. Now, keep in mind this: this is an ice surface built on an actual Olympic pool. Olympic pool. Oh, okay. When you first said it, I thought you meant it was on, like, you know, Madison Square Garden, where you go up to a floor and there's the arena. You're talking about they literally froze ice into an Olympic swimming pool? No, no. Oh. The the Olympic pool was underneath it. Oh, okay. The, okay. the, the, the uh, structure went across the top of the pool. Okay, so it was still built on the pool. It was built... It, built right on the whatever you would call that of a pool deck wow and that that was the arena there was royal boxes we never we did never had the queen at a home game okay but we did have royalty because there was a royal box <laughs> there at a home game uh, so anyways and the funny thing was and i'm jumping ahead here but the the uh, guys in the white coats 
that some of your listeners might remember from old Maple Leaf Gardens, or they've seen in old films yeah, or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. The white coats, the barrels, the brooms, and and the et cetera, et cetera. We, we didn't have an ice machine. There was no ice machine to clean the ice there. So they would come out on the intervals and they would clean the ice, prep, prep the ice or whatever. And the funny, the reason I'm bringing it up is because in France, and you, you see this now, there's an ice machine. Most people are familiar with the Zamboni and everybody calls an ice machine, no matter what the make is. Olympia they call or it whatever, the Zamb- yeah, yeah. Well, they call it the Zamboni, but, but the, the Olympia, and you, you just said it, the Olympia was the f- first ice machine, if I'm not mistaken, produced in Europe and it was produced in France. So one comes over to the Wembley pool. Now we're, now we're going to introduce the this ice machine in, into the Wembley pool for this protein. First of all, they have to reconstruct the boards at the corner because the ice machine won't go through the boards, won't go through the opening that's been created because that was for barrels and brooms and brushes or whatever. Next thing is you're looking around for the staff. Where is the staff? They're hiding. They've all gone. They're behind a pillar. They're in, they're in another room or whatever. They are 100% convinced as soon as this machine goes onto that ice surface, it's going in the pool, down below. <laughs> so they're, they're gone. So that didn't, that, didn't, <laughs> that, that didn't happen, obviously, or, or I guess we'd have a different story. But the, the opening that was made to get it through was yet not quite wide enough. And so there was a little bit of uh, hectic activity just getting onto the ice. But anyway, long story short, they, it was an unbelievable experience. We played um, six straight weeks at home uh, for the most part. I think we might have had one or two road games out of Wembley. So we went from October 15th to December 1st. December 1st is, um, is a critical date because the ice show came into Wembley Pool for three shows a day for three consecutive months months so three months so guess what happened to the london lions for three months oh, oh, oh. Uh, we went on a three-month road trip with um with our 21 or two or three players and uh guys who were married uh lundstrom was was married a couple of the guys were married our captain's name was rick mccann from stratford ontario he and his wife Nancy. They had a little girl named Megan. Uh, they were on, so they they were with us for three consecutive months on the road. So we played uh, IFK in uh, Helsinki, and, and I'll give you another little tidbit. Um, I'm running too long here on this particular. You are question, not running too long. This is gold. Anyway, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what is funny. So in in the Ahern Cup, remember I said the president of the IIHF, Bunny Ahern. Yeah. So there was there was a European Cup the, called the Hearn Cup, and we played in it. And it was played, uh, I'm not sure where it was played, uh, maybe in Stockholm. or uh, Anyways, it was, it was played either Sweden or, or Finland, but I think, it was in, I think it was in Stockholm. Anyways, there was a 15-year-old player playing for Deer Garden in that tournament against the London Lions and everybody else by the name of Kent Nielsen. No. Yep. And there was a Regina Pats team also in that tournament representing a major junior hockey in Western Canada, at least, if not 
Canada, but I think it was just Western Junior or whatever. Yep. And Dennis Sobchuk was playing for Holy Regina Pats. Cow. Yeah. What was so, he, so it was crazy because we got through that and then we were in Switzerland and we played in Switzerland and then we we took a 16-hour bus trip from Switzerland to Prague and we played um, the Czech national team two games, one both in Prague. And again, to Barkley's credit, like we're a bunch of um, American League, um, not me, not me, but the players. Yep. American League caliber, CHL caliber players from Canada, North America, and we're playing against Nedimansky, uh The two Holiks, that was Bobby Holik's brother, uh, played on that team, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the one game, I think we lost two to one, and maybe the other game three to two. So it was an incredible showing, and then and then we go play out in the country. So I hope you think this is funny because I think it's funny because I I still like uh, a little bit of toughness and stuff in the, in the game. We go out to a place called Litvinov in Czechoslovakia, and there's a um, there's a skirmish, major skirmish out on the ice where somebody spears somebody and somebody cross checks somebody else. The typical sure. Yep. You know, the early, early 70s stuff. Yep. And uh, Barkley, the coach, the Czech coach, he absent Barkley, and Barkley, the guy didn't know he was a lefty, and all of a sudden, uh, well, you can imagine what happened. Anyway, so out on the ice, um, the Army comes through the end boards, and they come out and they spray all our players with mace. Oh! On the, but not, not, the, uh, not the other teams, but just our players. So people are pretty panicked, so... We get out of there, but here's the funny thing. So we, we have four more games left on this tour in Czechoslovakia. And guess what do you think ticket sales were like in the next four games <laughs> of, of that series? You couldn't, with American money, you could not have bought a ticket to oh. any one of those games. So anyways, you know, some people, the Don Cherries of the world, and I might be one of them think that that's still part of the game well uh, that is but no i've never heard that story out i guess just one last one so you played 72 games um the standings were irrelevant these were just mo- mostly what we would call now friendlies but far obviously the last story proving they weren't um you yep. just played other t- did you did you play the russian teams too or did you just go as far as the checks I guess no, the, they came the russian teams came to us they did like eh? uh red army came to us we never we never never went to Russia. We never went across their border, but they okay. did come into London, and uh, they ate a lot. I'll tell you that. Oh, I bet they did. I bet they, they, they had they had really good teams. Like, what well, was funny watching them warm up? Um, so they'd have their big breakfast in the morning. They'd go to the rink, over to Wembley Pool, and they do uh, they would do a workout like a, a morning skate, like that we know now, but it's an hour long including gymnastics, tumbling, whatever. I think it was just to get their appetite back up again to go back for lunch. And then they would take uh, what was left over from lunch, and that would be their 4 o'clock snack, and then a great big meal again after the game. So they they played us in Wembley. Uh, We never played them there. And the same thing with the club teams from Czechoslovakia. We, We went there and played, well, I'm sorry, we went there and played the national team. Right, and then in the club teams, but uh, we never did go to Russia on that trip. We spent um, we spent Christmas in uh, Helsinki and New Year's Eve in uh, Stockholm playing the uh, 
you know, the first division teams in, in those countries on this part of the tour. Incredible. Uh, he is Al Coates. He's our guest here today. Just want to remind you, Sport Calgary members have access to resources such as marketing on social media, blog entries, features, and placement on the events listing. Become a member. It's easy and free. Visit www.sportcalgary.ca slash members. Al, I, I parked Detroit. So that season ends, you come back to North America, and now you you join the Red Wings. Is that right? Yeah, I had one more year in Virginia. Um, okay. The um, the Detroit decided to pull the plug plug on the franchise down there, and anyways, I'll try and speed this up. But I had I already liked it there. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was a good franchise. I thought it had a good future, and I went in Virginia Beach and had uh, got five other investors along with myself, who had no money. Uh, some some things never change because I still don't. But anyways. Uh, but I convinced these guys that this was a good investment. They agreed. I went to Hilton Head. I went to the board of directors, made my pitch to uh, buy the franchise from the Detroit for a really good, uh, reasonable price and and was awarded the franchise, went back to the phone and full of excitement, called back my partners and two of my partners or the partners had reneged. And then I had to walk back into the boardroom, said, to, sorry, I apologize, but the deal's off. Ouch. So anyways, yeah, so that was um, that was the, that was the, my last summer in the American League. And then, uh, as I think I mentioned way back when, Alex Vecchio called me and said, well, why don't you come to Detroit? So I went to Detroit as uh, Director of Publicity and Promotions. And what's funny about that was uh, uh, my, my first year in the American League uh, was Gordy's last, Gordy Howe's last year. Uh, he just retired from the Red Wings after 25 consecutive years, and now was in the front office. Right. So, anyways, he he's still around, and and he and Bark uh, Doug Barkley were obviously very close and played together. And yep. I got to know him. It was uh, one, you know one of the great treats and treasures, obviously, of my life to spend a lot of time with him. But we're in port here and in training camp, um, and this is the first year that he's not playing after his first 25 years before going to the WHA and da, 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 all that kind of stuff. Anyway, um, there was a morning skate. We had, there was two arenas in Port, Port Huron and there was a morning skate. And then afternoon after about five consecutive or 10 consecutive days, probably of two days, uh, there was no afternoon practice. And I'm walking back to the hotel and I hear this uh, pucks and shooting and pucks and, Setter in the one rink, and I said, "Jesus, well, there's no practice. Like, who, who who's in here?" So I I go in there. the The rink is in darkness, and there's one guy in there in a uh, Detroit Red Wings sweatsuit. One guy in the dark, <laughs> and you you I think you already know who it was. Yeah. So I so I'm watching to see what what is he doing out there. You know what he was doing. He was playing billiards on the ice, seeing how many pucks he could carry him off another puck. <laughs> and he had he had this ga- he had this game going on all by himself, uh, just to, you know, just to be on the ice. Uh, it was, I guess, one of the testaments or ev- part of the evidence or whatever how much he loved the game and how great he was. And I stood there and watched, and I watched him to get to three and then four and then. I think at one time he had seven moving at one time or whatever pucks on the ice. Can you imagine? Like it was, it was crazy. It was so anyway, so that was my first year, uh, my first year in Detroit, but that, but I was also still in the American league then 
going up to um, the Red Wings for, and, and Barkley now is coaching again. He got his second stint in uh, Detroit uh, to coach the Red Wings, and I went up as director of publicity and promotions, and, and lucky, lucky me, <laughs> they said, we need some help there. And I got there, and I soon found out why they, they, uh, Marcel Dion had left and oh. gone to the LA, LA Kings. So, right. yeah, they needed some help <laughs> in a big way. I said, uh, Moses and I aren't going to fix this. I'm telling you that. Like, to lose a superstar player, like, the year before I got there, this is, this is interesting. Danny Grant, who just passed away this few months ago in Fredericton, New Brunswick, played left wing with Marcel Dion and, Mar- and Mickey Redmond played right wing the year before I went to Detroit. And combined, they had 157 goals. Oof. The three guys. Yep. Dion is the, is the crafty centerman and two guys who could just fill the net. And so the next year, Dion is gone and Danny Grant tears the uh, whatever muscle it is that goes to your kneecap. Um, I, I forget, on the on the top of your leg. I forget the name of it. Anyways, tears that. He's out. And Mickey Redman has back surgery. Oh. <laughs> so in, in, in one year, there's 150-some goals gone from one line. And, and my job is to, be, uh, <laughs> is to be director of publicity and promotion for this fiasco. So anyways, it was interesting. It was all... Great, great learning experience. I, I love Detroit, to be honest. Uh, there was a guy they named there, and you probably recognize the name. He was His nickname was the One-Armed Bandit, and his name was Bud Lynch. Sure, the longtime and, PA yeah. address announcer, right? Yeah, at, at, well, before that, he, he, was the, he was the play-by-play guy. Oh, I, oh that's on right, ra- too. Okay, yeah. And ra- on, on radio, and he actually, he actually announced the very first televised game I think this is right in the history of the National Hockey League, the right. very first one. Yeah, in the mid '50s somewhere, or whatever that he, he announced the game. Anyways, he he became like my second father. Like I, I couldn't go anywhere. Like we we were inseparable, and he was such a a wonderful wonderful guy. So, anyways, uh, we we remained friends forever. So I was there five years through a very uh, turbulent time in Detroit with ownership and then multiple changes at the GM level and multiple changes in coaching and good good teams and bad trades and et cetera, et cetera. So anyways, that's kind of that. Oh, and, and yesterday or two days ago, I'm, I'm watching NHL Classics after watching a game. What comes on on NHL Classics a couple of nights ago is but the 1980 NHL All-Star, All-Star game. game. Yeah. Well, guess who ran that? Was that you? That was me that ran that event, uh, working for Detroit yep. on behalf of the league. And we put that event on in Joe Lewis Arena in February. And and the, the interesting thing about it, it's no big deal except for this. The building didn't open, and we didn't move out of Olympia Stadium into Joe Lewis Arena until the middle of December. And that Ooh. building wasn't even close to being ready to host an event Ooh. of any kind. Wow. There were no, there were no rooms anywhere for anything. Quite frankly, we barely had dress rooms for teams. Right. Let alone anything else. So, it was interesting to see it because uh, I'll never forget it. Quite frankly, because uh, Howe was representing Hartford Whalers. Yep. And gets this standing ovation in the introductions that they can't stop. 
like it went 10, 12 minutes, and he finally skates over to Lefty Wilson, the trainer on the bench, and says something to him, and then puts his hand up in the air one more time, and then it finally starts to subside. But that, that standing ovation went on for, I don't know, 10, 12, 13, 14 minutes. They couldn't get the people to sit down. Unbelievable. In, in, a, in a packed Joe Lewis arena, and one of the players on the other team was a young 19-year-old <laughs> named Wayne Gretzky. I know. Um, so pretty interesting. I would say, stuff. yeah, no kidding. Uh, okay, so and then in the third, and then in the third period of that of that game, how assists on a goal by Kluche. Yeah, and, and and the place goes nuts again. So, anyways, well, the, look, Al, you you touched on before. There's, uh, you know, in all due respect to Jerome and Lanny and how beloved they are, very much in this city. But there's few NHL players, I would say, you know, probably Gretzky in Edmonton or in, in Boston, you know, Maurice and, and, and Jean Beliveau in Montreal. But Gordie Howe in Detroit is special, like on a special level that I don't think a lot of people appreciate, right? Well, yeah, without, without question. I mean, uh, not to, like, I mean, his, his uh, celebration of life was, like, it was over the top. There were thousands of people there. Yeah, you know, like yeah. uh, in in Detroit for for that. But you know why he was special? You named the other guys. You know, like you named Wayne, you named Bobby, you named Jerome, you named Lanny. Yep. Yeah. And and there's been some other really really because they're special people. Yeah. It's not it's not just that that they were special players. Like how you can argue all you want. I don't care. Like you pick him. Was Wayne the best player? Was Bobby the best player? Was Gordy the best player? Was Mary Lemieux the best player? I mean, who's going to argue? Yeah. Like, and why would you argue? That's 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 always my point. Exactly. So I get asked that question all the time. I says, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, so my my uh, love for how Bobby Orr changed the game, mm -hmm. and my infinity for for uh, how, and and then having Calgary play against. Wayne all yeah. those years yeah. and then watching the greatest goal that I've ever seen in the 2002 Olympics with Mario Lemieux not touching the puck that's the best play I've ever seen in hockey ever yeah. Yeah. Is, is puts all those guys in they're, they're different but the one thing they're, that's, they're in a different caliber but the one thing that's special about that group that you mentioned and, and to this day how Gretzky revered how right? Absolutely. Not that he didn't revere Bobby Orr or anything like that, but that's not it. There was a connection, a, a, a kind of a fatherly connection, if you will, between those two players, and you talked about it, that there's lots of pictures of the two of them at that game, right? There, yeah, oh, for sure. You, you know what yeah. I mean? And it's not the, it wasn't the, I don't believe that was the first time they met, because uh, did they not play against each other in the WHA? I believe so, but more importantly, that I'm pretty sure I hope I hope I have this right. I'm sure, like living in, living in Brantford, like there was a connection back. Yeah. Uh, that's not that far away from no, Detroit. No, no, you no, know, no. Down there, and 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 I know Wayne just idolized Gordy, and and the respect was mutual. Yeah, I mean, uh, Gordy followed Wayne around for how many games? Yeah, uh, before eventually Wayne breaking uh, Gordy's uh, all-time point record. So. I, I think there's a there's and, and fortunately there is there's a there's a respect amongst all those players there, there's a respect I love I love hockey players I really yeah. do like I yeah I think they're a special breed and I and I 
and of athletes and and like I, I can't name like one percent of of them that I don't like, and uh, quite frankly, and some are just better than others. But you know, when you think about people playing in the National Hockey League, and we have a tendency to forget this, we, we were very critical of guys playing the National Hockey League. But the, but they themselves are within one percent of all the players that play. Yes. Yeah. You know, and, and yet we're critical of those guys. Well, the guy can't do this, and he can't do this, and he can't do that, or whatever. And I put myself in that same boat. It's part of my job to yeah. to separate uh, people. But they're the best. They're the best players in the world. All of these guys, and to play a hundred games in the NHL in whatever era is really special. And then for in most cases to give back uh, on a daily, weekly, monthly, annual basis to the communities that you live in is yet that more is yet again special they're they're special people so al coach if i remember this correctly you said you were the first employee for tidewater in the american hockey league were you not the first employee for the relocation of atlanta to calgary were you not the first calgary flames employee Uh, that is also correct how did you come to being in detroit you know charge you just put on this spectacular all-star game how did you end up in calgary well, the turmoil was part of it in Detroit. Um, uh, Ted Lindsay was the manager. There was a big meeting. Everybody's going to get let go, redeployed, whatever type of thing. And and I was one of those guys. I, I remember getting a phone call at home at 11 o'clock at night on a Friday night. And, and Barton Capellian, the, the writer for the Detroit News, says, I don't think you're working anymore. I said, what? <laughs> so anyways, what had happened was John Ziegler the commissioner of the National Hockey League, was the vice president of the Red Wings before he went to New York to be the president. I don't know this for a fact, but I think he had something to do with me ending up here, calling Cliff uh, Fletcher, who was president general manager of the Atlanta Flames, soon to be the Calgary Flames, and say, you know, you might want to look at this guy. So I, I don't know for sure, but I think that's how that happened. And it's funny, my, my wife, Jane, we're, we're going through some things a bunch of paper we we do have a little bit of time on our hands these days but i i have uh it's dated july 22nd uh, 1980 uh, a picture from the calgary herald of me unveiling the logo of the calgary flames wow as the first as the very first employee because i came here as the public relations director right and so i remember i remember doing that it was in the brand room at the uh at the stand at the Calgary Exhibition Stampede, brand room, press conference, media conference, whatever. And after after a, a lively contest of, of artists and companies submitting their recommendations for what the logo should look like, uh, essentially it ended up being the Atlanta, the Atlanta A turned into the Calgary C. Why? Was it, I mean, you're, the statute of limitations has run out, I'm sure, but was was the fix in as they say all along or no no it wasn't it no it wasn't there was um i think the name of the group was intergroup uh was an uh advertising firm in calgary at that particular time and they were in they were in charge actually of receiving submissions on on um advertising and promotional and and design companies submitting bids and there was actually um a financial reward for whatever whatever would be deemed uh, the the best 
the, the, the best of the best. And the, the two, and it's in the article, quite frankly, I just read it again yesterday. It's in it, it, the two best that we came out of about, I don't know, 30 or 40 submissions was one, one was really close to the Philadelphia Flyers logo. And, and I'm quoted in this article saying, well, it never would have passed the league because it's too close to the Philadelphia Flyers logo. And the second one was, <laughs> and I, I, I sound like, uh, I don't know, I, I think I sound like an idiot, but it was probably true at the time in 1980, is that we, we can't reproduce this onto T-shirts and hats and, and uh, whatever. Right. The other logo that we like. Yeah. So so what happened was, um, what happened was the Atlanta A, uh, Nelson Scalvania was the, the initial for a very short period of time uh, owner uh, along with Hardy Doc and BJ etc cetera, etc cetera. like very first like first year and his daughter Roseanne said I like this and so that that's what we unveiled and that's what happened so was it always going to be flames with carry over the name from Atlanta was there any ever any thought of changing the name you know I don't know I don't I don't think anybody's ever asked me that before, and I'm not sure my 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 and it's just a purity guess is that Flames would have been in the name, um, but but I can't even tell you that for a hundred percent. I I honestly can't, quite frankly, I don't remember. I I don't know. So Al, know. you just mentioned that you were you were part of the first event to open up the. Uh... The new uh, the new Joe Lewis Arena, but then you moved to Calgary and you're in the corral. But right from the get go, you guys knew that was a short term, right? Yeah, well, it was supposed to be two years, um, but it ended up being three years. That's typically what would happen with a new building. Uh, so, um, you know, what's really interesting about this and all this stuff because I, people are not going to believe this when I say this. There was a concern in in nineteen in the spring of 1980 when the team was awarded here. That it might not be successful really? and 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 the reason for that was the WHA had not mm. been and the WHA was very successful in Edmonton yeah and turned into the Edmonton orders of the NHL so there was a little bit you know if anybody is listening who can remember that far back is going to think I'm crazy but I know this for a fact right that, that it was it like you know it wasn't it wasn't until tickets went on sale uh, Nelson Scalbini. Somebody said to Nelson Scalbini, like, when do tickets go on sale? Well, why not in an hour? Well, nobody was ready for that. And so the box office was crashed in the old stampede crowd, whatever. That's a, that's a whole different uh, story. But that, that was really maybe the very first indication of, of the hysteria that then, then surrounded the arrival of this team and that I think ownership were totally comfortable that uh, you know, like we're in the National Hockey League. This is big time. You know, we haven't had this before. Evan already has it, whatever type of thing. And and we're you know we're here forever. Or forty years later, we're talking. What what was the that inaugural season like? How much of it was learning, adapting, and creating on the fly? And 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 part of that is. You and I sat at the corral about a year ago as as the Hitmen were playing a series there, and you were telling me some stories. But you know, even then, you had to make some modifications. Even then, there were some limitations. How big of a challenge was it playing out of that building in the early days? Well, the good the good thing is, and this parlays into every sports team forever, all the time. Like 
when you're sold out in season tickets, that's one very important part of your business you don't have to worry about. So you can focus on a lot of other things. You're you're then in a serv- the servicing aspect of your season ticket base, but you don't have to worry about selling tickets. And talk to anybody in Florida today or, or a lot, or I'm, I'm not picking on them, but like multiple yeah. cities yeah. Uh, around the National Hockey League or sports in general. And you talk to the executives in the front office and tell them what their biggest concern is. Their biggest concern is is either a their product, but but their even bigger is is bums and seats, and how we how are we going to fill this building? Well, we didn't have to worry about that. We were completely sold out in the 6,800, 6, I think it was 6,800 seats in the lower bowl. Well, there's only one lower bowl, and then 1,800 seats. I'm not sure about that either, but anyways, of standing room space, it might have been. Uh, it doesn't matter. 18 inches was your standing room only season ticket around the railing in the corral so the place was jammed so imagine being here in the middle of july and uh, the team's not yet here everybody has to come up buy a house find a place to live whatever type of thing get training camp ready have an exhibition series uh and get ready for opening night in the corral and do all that in like in like two months but the, the late Stu Hendry uh, was an absolute godsend. He worked for Molson's. He knew everybody in the city. I had a reasonably good idea what had to get done. And um, anyways, and along with my uh, wife, who was with a radio station in town in promotions at the time, like uh, also knew everybody. And it, it's amazing how all that came together in like 60 days to get ready you know, to play an opening game in the crowd. And then we're off to the races. That, fir- that first year, we had a giant team, uh, you know, the likes of Plett and Houston and Brad Marsh and Poplinski, who still lives in Calgary, and et cetera, et cetera, and Bill Russell. And Eric Vale? Anyway, let's get Eric Vale. Like, the, the, the size of the team was astronomical. It was huge. Right. And, and, and skilled. The Bobby McMillans of the world and Guy Schoenards and Paul Reinhardt and Akarata Kellio in the backhand, and I'm forgetting all kinds of really good players, obviously on on that team at the, at the moment. But I mean, we lost four home games the the whole year. I mean, we jokingly we we joked later in the '80s saying, "Well, Flurry couldn't have played that on that team because he couldn't have got over the boards." I mean, the, <laughs> the boards were six or seven seven inches higher or six inches higher than standard boards of other rinks. But it, it made the rink look like it was so small, and we had this giant team that other teams, like as, as big as Clark Gillies and Nystrom and, and the Sutters and all those guys were coming in from Long Island or any of those other teams, or, or the big bad Bruins right. coming into, into Calgary to play the Calgary Flames. It, it was a challenge for, for other teams, and we had a really good team. We had a great power play. We had good goaltending. We had... A lot of really good things going for that team, and as, as a result of it, we go through the year and we end up beating Philadelphia in Game Seven in the Spectrum uh, there, and and uh, and come back home. And unfortunately, uh, you know, we got beat by Minnesota in in the old Met Center in in uh, in Minnesota to kind of end that dream for that year. What do you remember the first Battle of Alberta in the in the corral? Uh, I'm not sure that I remember the very first one. Um, they were, 
well, everybody, everybody within reach here understands the complexity of that. It wasn't, it wasn't just the, uh, and we all know this, it wasn't just about the two teams. No. It, it, it was about the jealousy, hatred, whatever you want to call it, between the cities, whether yep. it was uh, the Stampeders, Eskimos, or city versus city, whatever. It didn't matter what it was. It was just the, it was about the, you know, the two teams. So, so they had, you know, they had the great players coming out of the WHA into the NHL and, of course, Gretzky and, and company, et cetera. So right from, right from day one, I mean, whether the teams themselves wanted to have that battle or not, they had no choice because it was it was implied in every way, which way and up, that it, that's the way it was going to be. It was going to be that way forever because of the of the rivalry between the two cities. So, you know, like we've been really fortunate um, here. Just touch on that, like you know, so, some of the very best hockey in the last three four decades has been played in this province between those two teams yep and people uh, have thoroughly enjoyed themselves like where my mind goes is not from the battle of alberta in in the uh, corral as much as opening game in the saddle on october 15th 1983 yep with was which is against evan and orders and and the late dave Semenko uh boards uh timmy hunter and the glass pops out in the in the corner, and it goes straight up, and unfortunately comes down over a fan in the first row, and the game is held up forever. That that's what I remember about that game. Right. And and it was you know every every battle, as you well know, like you couldn't get a ticket. It, it was people laugh when I tell them this, but I, I remember the handicap seating um, in in the saddle dome. And the people would actually cheat. They'd buy a ticket so they could get the companion ticket. And I, I remember, I remember coming down out of the press box a couple, three minutes early before the end of a game. Can't remember whether we won it or lost it. Doesn't really matter. And I see these two guys. This guy's peeling off these uh, these fiberglass casts off his knees and out of the out of the wheelchair, and he's running like a bugger. You know, like. The two of them are running out of the uh, out of the building because they, you know, they they know they've essentially committed fraud, and and the police after them and haul them down. But it just was <laughs> it was e- e- evidence of how hard it was to get a ticket and what people would go to right to, to get a ticket to watch one of those games. And and the good news for everybody today is that that still exists and. And this past year, with the incident that happened between the two teams, uh, whether you like it or don't like it, it just put more fuel on the fire. Here we go again. It's great. I love it. Um, how, because you would, and we probably won't have time for that story today, but you would eventually go to work for Glenn Sather, right? Um, but yeah, it's how, uh, inter- how sorry, deep, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, how deep was the how deep was the team rivalry? I mean, you know, nowadays we'll share information with. Edmonton and Edmonton shares information Vancouver the teams are more a collective group but I'm just wondering you know was it just on the ice or it, you know you mentioned that city to city rivalry that battle of Alberta on the you know in, in football in the CFL was it organization organization too at that time it, it wasn't just on the ice trust me uh, I, I can remember many many times being in Edmonton and crossing the street or watching somebody else cross the street so we wouldn't have to walk down the same sidewalk and meet each other Really? So, 
Yeah, and uh, so, uh, I mean, I, I remember like Cliff, I remember Glenn calling Cliff after we won on 89 and, and saying to him, he says, well, congratulations, but now now your troubles begin. And, and what it was about was like expectations of salaries and here sure. we go and we're the Stanley Cup champions and whatever. And of course, they'd already gone through that a couple of three times or a couple of times anyways, three times, I guess, by that point. And, uh, but you know, like at governor's meetings, obviously you're going to have some conversation because it's business. But you know, for the majority, the majority of the people, uh, fortunately, uh, teams work together now. They work together in business. They work together in marketing. They work together in all kinds of things. And and it's uh, you know, it's a big business off the ice that people they have to work together. But there were no there were no deals between the the two teams that I can remember. Uh, we signed, uh, I think it was during my time as GM, we signed uh, a free agent that had played for the Oilers uh, one summer on a one-year contract. Uh, we we actually chased Kevin Lowe to try and sign him as a free agent, and Glenn called me and, and uh, gave me a piece of his mind over that. Which, no, uh, okay, was, hold on. This, this I've never heard before. The Calgary Flames tried to sign Kevin Lowe as a free agent. Yeah. Yeah, well, we put uh, Pierre uh, Page was here, and they're both of them will shoot Quebec, and yep. we're all we're, we're like every summer, like every summer, well, like when Cliff was here, no matter who, we're all t- always trying to get better. And you think you think they wouldn't do the reverse? I mean, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, sure. we we had we had one of the toughest guys in the league that we 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 didn't sign and, and made a mistake in not signing, and what next day he's in Evan and Oiler. Yeah. So you. You had to be on your. Um, and that's you had to be on. That your... was Nick Patillo. No, it was a kid named Dennis Bonvi. Oh, and, Dennis uh, Bonvi. Okay, sorry, sorry. Because Fatio so, did Fatio play for Edmonton or am I misrepresenting? Yeah, no, he did. Yeah, yeah okay. He didn't, but I don't but, ask me if it was before or after us because I don't remember. Well, the the internet I, will tell me that. But tell me about I, Dennis Bonvi because I remember that name. Well, I remember going to McGinnis and uh, because uh, Al McGinnis and. Uh, and saying to him, I says, well, you're from the Maritimes. There's a lot of tough kids from the Maritimes. Uh, call down there and talk to some of your buddies down there and see who the toughest kid in the Maritimes is. And uh, so like a day later, he comes back to me. He says, well, all my guys down there, like the guy that uh, ran the, the boxing in Halifax and, you know, wherever it was, Nova right. Scotia, New Brunswick, PEI, didn't matter, over in the island or whatever, like, Anyways, the, the the consensus was coming back to him. The toughest guy was a kid from uh, Nova Scotia playing in uh, in North Bay called Dennis Bonby. Yep. So we bring him to training camp, and and and, and <laughs> they weren't wrong. He was really really tough, and he's a really good guy. And yep. and uh, anyways, I don't know whether we didn't have enough contracts or whatever the reason was, but uh, we we didn't sign him at the conclusion of training camp or during. Or maybe we released some guys, and he was one of them. I can't remember. Well, the next day he was in Evan and Oiler. Wow. So, so, um, anyways, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's competition, right? You know, everybody's looking for an edge. You're looking for an edge in skill. You're looking for an edge in toughness. You're in today's game. You're looking for an edge in analytics. You're looking for an edge in psychological testing. Whatever it is, it. That part of the game is never is never changed. Everybody's competitive, and everybody's trying to beat the other guy. Uh, how how whatever it takes and whatever it takes. So, 
just uh, tiny examples of what people did or would do and still do to try and beat the other guy. And that's that's why the game is as great as it is. And and it's why some franchises, quite frankly, are better than others because people work harder. Al, I'm going to ask you, uh, there's a, a legend out there about um, the, one of the original owners, uh, Nelson Scalvania. Did, yeah. he, did he, because Nelson originally had Wayne Gretzky in Indianapolis, right? Correct, yes. And he traded him from Indianapolis to Edmonton. That's correct. There has been a story out there for... He sold, it was sold, sold him, actually. I'm sorry, sold, 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 sold him? Sold his rights. I don't think there was a trade. I think he sold his rights. Right. Um, w- w- did There was always this kind of story that, that Scalbania thought he could get Gretzky back. That he thought he had a back door to get him back. Is there any truth to that? Uh, that is, um, that's a story. I never saw that piece of paper. Okay. Uh, I was uh, ever, and but but it what you're what you're reciting is a rumor, a strong rumor for sure at the time. Okay. Um, and in the early years of uh, Calgary Flames, but I heard it just like you've heard it. I never, I never saw that piece of paper. I don't know anybody who did, uh, so I, I can't. So uh, it's just, it's rumor. It's what it is. It's legend. It's one of those things. It's that, legend. That, it's uh, from from my perspective, at least. Yeah. And I was here from day one. Yep. Uh, not that I was privy to all the uh, legal documents, uh, and I wasn't for sure. Right. But I never saw. I never saw the paper. Okay. No, I just, I, I'd heard that, and I, I just wondered about it. That's all. Um, would have made a great story, but that's that's the <laughs> yeah. best part about legend. Now, what isn't legend, and I, I want to come back to the, the, the formative years in the Stanley Cup run, but speaking of play, did the Calgary Flames not put in an offer sheet on Timu Solani before Winnipeg signed him? That's correct, yes. So, so is there a story there, or was that just a procedural? No, it um, you know it was a right of any team to do that. It still exists. Team like Montreal put an offer sheet in on a player last summer, so that that opportunity still exists. If you want to want to go down that road, uh, so Annie wasn't here yet. Uh, that's the real crux of the story. He he had had not yet played in the National Hockey League. Right. And so this would have been uh, maybe the summer of '92. Uh, no, not '92. Uh, I forget now, but anyways, he he had just played in the Olympics somewhere. Okay. But but anyways, to answer your question, it's it's true. Uh, an offer sheet was put in on him. Winnipeg uh, matched the offer. So the first three years of his contract, and he and I have talked about this many times because we were in Anaheim together uh, for the 07 Cup run. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so the first for first three years of his contract in Winnipeg were actually the contract that he signed with Calgary matched by Winnipeg. Okay, okay. Um, by the way, just to take you back to fact check myself, um, Nick F- Nick Fatiu played in 85-86, nine games for Calgary, and 86-87, 42 games for Calgary. He played a single game for the Edmonton Oilers in the 88-89 season. So oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was a great, great guy. But you, you know, you talk about, you know, like uh, when we got him, we got him like with five minutes to go at the trade deadline in 1986. And uh, the deal had been made uh, by Cliff with uh, Bill Torrey mm-hmm. 
to bring John Tonelli to Calgary and Richie Crom and Stevie Conroy going the other way. And so everybody was excited about that trade, John Tonelli off the, you know, Canada Cup teams, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I remember last, like, with two minutes to go we went to the dread trade deadline, Cliff said to Al McNeil and I, like, uh, like we can get this guy for tea or whatever, and I think it was already done anyways. And anyway, so when the when that rumor went down downstairs to the dressing room, Joey Mullen was beside himself, just beside himself with, with Badger Bob Johnson about how we're going to win the Cup. We're not going to win the Cup. And I remember Badger said, yeah, Tonelli's a really good player. He said, no, no, he's not. Not, not Tonelli is a good player, but it's Nicky. <laughs> We're going to win the cup. Nikki's here. <laughs> and so they, they, they were pals from Cape Cod. Okay. And and they they were pals in the summertime, and they, you know, they played summer hockey together. And Joey Mullen absolutely loved Nikki. And, of course, Nick Nick grew up in the the Bronx in New York on the docks. And that's where he, part of the where he got his strength from is, is working on the docks in, in, in New York. And uh, playing in the old East Coast Hockey League and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, yeah. You know, you talk about legends. I mean, as, as, as tough as they came. And, and interestingly enough about him, like he could, he could shoot a puck like no other. And in straight lines, he could really skate. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you know we, there's intimidation in the game today in a different form. And, and it was a big year of intimidation. And he was a very imposing very imposing player so uh and credit joey mullen he knew it you know like he was excited about it yeah getting him on getting him on our team and it was interesting because we played montreal that year in the finals as you remember and uh and they had uh, both chris nyland and uh, and john cordick uh, tough guys and of course we had our own crew here but uh like uh, nick might have been slightly at a different level but got hurt and couldn't play the finals. Oh. So, um, anyways, yeah, he, uh, he got hurt in the, uh, actually in the series against Evan, that uh, series that we won in, in Game 7 in Edmonton that year. That, you know, we've touched on a little bit. I just want to talk to you about that. Those, those were different guys. Those were special guys in that year. Not to glorify something that, I guess, is not part of the game as much anymore, but I guess I am glorifying it. The, the heavyweight in the 80s, particularly, um, there would still be heavyweights moving on, but the heavyweights in the 80s were a pretty special group, weren't they? Well, they were, they were a special group, and they had a, the worst job uh, in hockey to do, and they knew it. Yeah. And so they accepted their roles. They were, they were really good at it. Uh, virtually everybody had somebody or more than somebody. And... Um, you know, I remember, like, you know, like in the early 80s with Cliff and Al and coaches sitting around and, you know, you spend your summer saying, like, how are we going to get better? I mean, teams do that still today, obviously. That you spend your summers preparing for free agency, the draft or whatever. And in our, our, in our uh, discussion about getting better was about we are getting closer to Edmonton. At least we thought we were. We believed we were. How are we going to get closer? I mean, they're better than us right now, and but what, what is it going to take to get closer? Uh, we don't have a Gretzky, and we don't have this or whatever. So you, you would see, well, one, one of the ingredients that 
potentially could narrow that gap was if we could get tougher and uh, better at this, better at that or whatever. But that's what you spent your um, off season doing was to figure out how you're going to get better. How are you going to get closer? Everybody's goal is to win the cup. Right. You know, for us in that particular year, winning the cup meant going through Edmonton in most cases. So how many more cups might we have won? Maybe none, maybe no more. But, uh, you know, Evan and, uh, you know, the great order teams, and they had great teams, and we had great teams. But some of the very best hockey played in the National Hockey League for a decade at least, if not longer, was played right here between the two teams in, in Alberta. I want to I wanna ask two more questions about the 80s Flames, and then I want to move on uh, to a little, little more current, maybe not all the way up to, to modern day, but a little more current. 86, Game 7, first round, third period in Edmonton. Where were you? What do you remember of the Perry Berezan game winner? I was in the press box in Northlands. Um, I remember the the shoot-in. I remember Perry Berezan. I think out of the corner of my eye, I saw him change. Yep. And I remember uh, the Edmonton defenseman going back uh, to get the puck and make a diagonal pass in in fairness to the defenseman. Grant may have been too far out of his net, but anyways, uh, irrespective, it doesn't matter. It happened, and a bank shot goes in the back of uh, Fury's leg into the net. I uh, probably will never forget that. I also will never forget, um, at, at that particular time, not having won a cup yet, in uh, Calgary or for me personally anywhere else um, to some extent that was that seemed like a cup hmm. like fine finally is uh, as the as the late Badger Bob Bob Johnson used to say like we're, we're climbing the mountain we're gonna we're, we're gonna get to the top here I mean we're, we're gonna get over we're gonna get to the peak and we're gonna get over well it seemed like we got over you know with with that win you know based on the previous six or seven, what I guess, six years yeah. of uh, playing against them, and and they had uh, great teams, and you you were always you were always in the neighborhood, but you just couldn't quite get through the door, and so uh, it it seemed like we like as an organization from ownership, fans alike, the city city versus city thing that we talked about earlier, seemed like we had, we had finally gotten over the mountain with that particular moment. Uh, that particular night and I remember chartering back to <clears throat> the airport in Calgary and there was maybe 25,000 fans at the airport uh, lined up along the, the fence and our players got off that plane and by one by one they walked down the inside of the fence and they, and they touched or said a load of virtually thousands of people before going in back into the airport and getting on the bus and making their way back home so uh, that's what I remember. Eighty-nine, um, obviously, is is so seminal in this city. It's so important to this organization. All of those things, but for you, um, having you know been in the league for as long as you had, clearly had crossed paths with the Canadians in, in many occasions. What was that win like? What was I mean to become the first team? To ever win the Stanley Cup in Montreal road team um, what what do you remember of, of what happened that night 
Yeah, I don't know. Uh, on your first point about the first team to win, I, I don't. I, I for one didn't know that at that time. Uh, to uh, being totally honest, hmm. I don't know who. Di- I don't know who did. Quite frankly, it, it wasn't. It really wasn't about being the first team uh, to to win the Stanley Cup in the Montreal Forum, like ever in history. No, and but Al, if- you would agree though. They were still the Canadians that had had won what five cups in the seventies in a row and. And you know had already run in '86. There was still that mystique. Not to take anything away from Montreal today, but at that time they were royalty, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah, for sure. No, I, I didn't mean that. I, I meant like I don't know how many of us knew. Yeah, yeah. That no other team had ever done that. Uh, that's that was my, my okay. point. Yeah. The, 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 I mean, the goal was clear. Like uh, you know, it, it, so often you don't get a second opportunity. So in 86, going back to 86 for a minute, in the conference final against St. Louis, mm-hmm. you know, we're up 4-1 to one, uh, with a few minutes to go, if I'm not mistaken, in the second period in St. Louis. And to win that game, I think it would have been on a Friday or Saturday night. Montreal had already been off a week after being Hartford. And, and uh, so we win that game, we get two or three, our team gets two or three days rest. Not that it might have made any difference in the series anyways. You know, Montreal, I think it's fair to say we're better than us in 86. And the wonderful classy thing about the guys at Carboneau and Trombley and Ganey and all those guys on on that Montreal team uh, for those years and, and, and the corresponding group on our team here, Lanny and et cetera, et cetera, like in, in a in a some kind of a charity event, which we've had here, they'll tell you that. Like Carbon will be the first guy to tell you that you were you being Calgary, you were better than us in eighty nine. And you you have to you have to acknowledge that we were better than you in eighty six. Yeah. I, I think I think it's it's classy, great character, great acknowledgement of, of who you are or whatever. Um, but anyways to answer your question, like uh so this is game six now, so we, we uh, lose at home game five. <coughs> Sorry. Montreal chose to charter home uh, right after the game, and, of course, so now there's uh, sleep experts and rocket science uh, involved in, in how you travel in the year 1999-2000. We, we, we pay people a lot of money to make these decisions now, and, and at that particular time, you know, I and, I and I know it was Cliff says like I, I don't know about uh, chartering right after the game, like uh, or 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 crispy, you know, coaching like I don't know like uh, why 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 don't we look at this? Why don't we stay home? Why don't we just stay home, stay in our own beds, and we'll take a 11 a.m. charter tomorrow. We'll get in at 4:30 uh, whatever. We don't need to. What, what, we're not, what do we need to practice for on on May 24th? So we're just going to go in there. We'll get into the hotel. We'll be in time to have a great dinner, go over a game plan, whatever video we want to do, whatever type of thing. We'll go to the rink and we'll practice uh, game day tomorrow morning. Uh, we did that. Um, Montreal chose to go home. And I think they, they would, I don't, want to, I don't want to answer for them even to this day, but I, I think they might tell you that they wish they hadn't done that. Because they got home at five thirty in the morning, and um, and a lot of them think they never really recovered. Recovered from that, yeah. So, yeah. <clears throat> anyways, I mean, and the, the game is the game is special. Sometimes there's destiny, and I kind of have 
I don't know. I, I sit there with this crazy nervous energy that I'm just like, I can't even talk. Right. Uh, right. And Cliff was beside me and he's driving everybody nuts. And, and, uh, <laughs> upstairs and Tom Watts on the headphone beside him. And we're winning, we're winning, uh, we're winning, uh, by a goal. I think if I got this right, you know, late in the game. And I remember saying to Tom Watt, I said, Tom, I'll take your headsets down. You need to go. You need to be on the bench. So he said, looked at me like I was nuts. There's still two minutes to go in the game. I said, we're, I said, we're winning the game. Where you go? <laughs> so Cliff, he's out walking the hallway somewhere. He couldn't say he was so, he was so excited and, and understandably so. He was, a, he grew up as a Montreal Canadian, you know, guy, you yeah. know, yeah. Montreal Canadian juniors, yeah. St. Louis Blues, Atlanta Flames, Calgary Flames, whatever. And all of a sudden you've got to, you're two minutes away or three minutes away, but this was a whole period of this, like the whole third period, this was going on. But you're a couple, three minutes away from doing something that was a, a lifetime dream for anybody, quite frankly, let, let alone him and for for Lanny and uh, and the players and the coaches and the fans and scouting staff and everybody. It's, you know, like, I mean, I, I feel privileged to have had that opportunity, quite frankly, and so, anyways, it was special. It was special. Um, you know, they, by the way, oh I hope, I hope, I really hope that we see that here, and I think we will in Calgary again because it is so special. Right. And there, and there's a lot of people in this city that have done a lot of great things, and and they they deserve to to see this and and to feel that and yeah. and bring the not just the city together, but the country together, the, the way the Calgary Flames did in, well, in, in that particular moment. I was just going to say the amazing part of, of that team is how close you you remain to this day, right? Uh, and, and they say that every time you win a championship, you walk forever together, right? You're always going to be connected. But that particular 89 group is is very much, you know, still finds a way not that long ago to get together for what the... 25th yeah, anniversary 25th, yeah yeah 25th right yeah. um yeah it's special it's, it's it's like it's like um you haven't seen your very best school friend for 35 years yeah and and in 15 minutes you're reconnected and you go on for hours on on conversation that's what that weekend was like for for everybody uh for the 25th anniversary and and there's still including say myself and Al McNeil and there's still like nine nine people from that team like seven players I think still live here yeah they still see each other they still do wonderful things in the community they are by far and away the biggest backers and supporters of the current group and wish nothing more than to see a, a new crop of players win a championship for the city but it, but is it is special. It, it was, but you know what? You know, I just got to say this. That that started, like we had great players. First of all, they're they're a great team. Mm -hmm. When you think of the team, if we were to go line by line, defense defense, and Mike Vernon and 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 Walmer and goal type of thing, like, and then the extra guys that we had that that could have played on most teams that couldn't play on our team at that particular time, it, an unbelievable family, but a family of great players and maybe more importantly great people but the ownership was like that it was it was it was crazy how the family how the family 
transcended from the ownership group down through every member of the staff and down and right into the team and and how everybody won like everybody won and uh, and everybody was part of it but uh for my first day my very first day stepping in calgary with that team uh the ownership with harley and doc and bj and and uh normie and norm and and uh, sonia they're un- unbelievable people yeah type, type of thing so in some respects we had no choice to, to, but to be try to be good <laughs> because the expectations were there to be good and you and you wanted to be good because of how good of people you were working for right it was it was crazy like loyalty goes both ways right and they they were a very loyal group to us and and we tried to return that by being good by being good to them and and trying to do something special that they dreamed about they dreamed about that as much as anybody else yeah trust me yeah i mean they they wanted that cup as much as anybody else yeah it, you know al it it strikes me as i think we we're going to sh- we're going to stop here because we need to do another show or I'm going to take you to till midnight tonight doing this one because we haven't even got to you becoming the general manager. We even got to you orchestrating two of the more significant trades in in Calgary history and and moving you know moving into the 2000s. So I, before I let you go, one of the questions we've been asking our guests on this program because it's really a Calgary focused show is we want and and I'm just going to give you I'm going to give it to you and then you you come up with the parameters. I don't want to you know, premeditate an answer in your head. But what we're looking for is give us your, when we're all done, when this, when we're back and life is normal, we want to give some people some things to look forward to or to think about or, or to look up. Give us your hidden Calgary gem. When Al Coates thinks of a hidden Calgary gem, what is it? Could be a restaurant, could be a park, could be anything. Just give us your hidden Calgary gem. Oh, and you want that right now? <laughs> Well, you could write it to us and submit it. We could pl- no. I want it right now. Yes. I uh, yeah. I think I have too many. I think I have too many to single in on on one. You because, may have mul- uh, You can have multiple answers, Al. I'll let you have multiple. Well, answers. For, for, first of all, like uh, my my wife's probably listening. So I I met my wife as a result of the Calgary Flames. Me coming here. Okay. Three beautiful three beautiful children. How, how's that for a start? Well, that's that's. Yes, you've done your your husbandly duty there, but I I, I was yeah. So then then the other thing that I always defer to always yeah, and and so and so it's not it's not about our next segment and some significant trades. It's not about the '89 Stanley Cup. It's not it, it's it's about the people right and and the people that I had the good fortune of dealing with not only at the ownership level, not only the people that I worked with in the in the front office not only the the people that that we worked together to create the calgary flame celebrity golf classic at canyon meadows like the bill creightons of the world yep type of thing it's not it it's just it's just about people in general and, and i think that's why we we were so afraid i know i was not afraid afraid's the wrong term i i was concerned about letting anybody down right that's why I wanted to try to do. That's why whatever my role was, and sometimes you're good and sometimes you're not so good. But whatever my role was, it, it was about you, you. 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 Nobody put you on a pedestal, but you put yourself there, and you have a responsibility to not 
fail and not let people down. And and in my whole uh, time here, I'm not saying I lived by that on a daily basis, but but it was it was a feeling. You know, it's just like people deserve this. They 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 deserve to ha- to have. Cliff Fletcher, Al McNeil, Terry Chris, well, the list goes on. Rick Skaggs will be listening. Mm-hmm. They, all of they, they deserve to have all these people at their very best because they entrusted us with something special. And so that's 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 how I worked. I think sure. That's how that's how I operated. So I so I can't answer your question and say that it was one thing. I didn't. One thing that was the 1989 Stanley no, Cup. It's, I, I know not, that. It's not one thing. I know that, but I was looking for a hidden gem because you have them. You have them. You have a couple of restaurants. Well, I'll go there. You have a couple of restaurants, special restaurants. That's what I was looking well, for. Well, for sure. Like we, so we used to go to uh, Delectable Delights on whatever it was. Uh, what would that have been? Seventeenth, uh, 16th Avenue. Right. And, and it was a little house converted with a great big deck on it. And, and the story, the wonderful stories about that is we we used to go there after games and like with Bob and Martha Johnson and Jane and I and McNeil's and Fletcher's and da-da, whoever type of thing, and they would stay open for us. And we get in there and, and they're expecting us to spend a bunch of money and all Badger wants to do is order like a banana split for 12. <laughs> And it's bring us a banana split for twelve, and we'll get twelve spoons. And, and the poor owner, Ralph. Ralph was the owner. He's looking like we stayed open for this. Are you kidding me? But anyway, they they were glad to have us. Oh, there was tons. We yeah. were out all the time. And you know, and it's interesting because just just a few weeks ago, when we were still playing here, um, one of the one of the late games, and I know why we have them. The eight o'clock games, the eight thirties. It's all. Is television driven, but you know, like we, we used to have six o'clock Saturday night games. Yep. And so at eight twenty, eight thirty, the time you get out of there, you're out of there by nine o'clock. We went out all the time. We had so much fun. It was it was part of the job, and you'd rehash the game, win, loser, ties at those times uh, in games, and we just had fun. And you're right, we hit a lot of a lot of restaurants. We hit a lot of people's houses uh, after game. We just had a good time. Because we enjoyed being uh, with each other uh, as a as a group, and as I said before, trying to do something special and day by day trying to get better. You are an amazing guy. Thank you, sir, from the bottom of my heart. I've enjoyed this. We'll have to do it again because we we left so much on the table. But Al, I really appreciate yeah, it's it. Been fun. It's been fun, but fun. You, uh, I didn't. You brought back a memory I didn't think I had. <laughs> so uh, thank you. Thanks. For, you you sucked it all out of me, Rob. Like it's I don't have there's nothing left. I got nothing left. Oh, Rob Kerr's not a liar. Rob Kerr's not a liar, right? I told you in the opening. So much we left on the table. How good was that? The name dropping, the names, the people, the times. For you younger people to, to maybe get a little bit of a history of the, the Flames when they first came to town, for folks my age to hear some of those names and some of those stories, and for diehard hockey puckheads like me, um, that stuff on, on the London uh, Lions was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And, and you know, the Timo Solani stuff was great. There, there, there's all kinds of gold, as we like to say, in there. And I do want to take this opportunity to thank Al Coates, um, I, I can't help but see us do yet another conversation with Al somewhere down the line. Uh, that is my hope. Listen, 
if this is the first one you've downloaded, the first time you've taken in the original Six Feet Conversation podcast here at Sport Calgary, uh, do yourself a favor. Um, this is one of, I guess they call it a humble brag. I'm only connected because I'm the host. It's the guests that make the podcast. Uh, Peter Marr, George Canyon, Steve Messler, uh, Trent McClellan, uh, Peter Labardius, uh, Katrina LeMay-Doan, uh, on and on that list goes. If you haven't heard them, go back, listen to them. It kills time. It puts a smile on your face. And gosh darn it, uh, it supports a, a great cause in Sport Calgary, but it also helps us promote what a great sports city Calgary is. So really excited you spent some time with us. Really excited Al Coates spent some time with us. Looking forward to the next one. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks for listening to Original Six Feet Conversation Podcasts here at Sport Calgary.